The personal views and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are their own and are not legal advice or official statements by their organizations. Hello, this is Debbie Reynolds of the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast, where we discuss pressing privacy issues with leaders around the world for information that businesses need to know now. Today, I have the pleasure of having Zahir Aleem, PhD, on the program. Aleem is an expert in smart cities and sustainable futures. He's an urban strategist and author of eight books. He has had his articles and his work featured in 65 publications. He speaks four languages. He is very passionate about exploring transdisciplinary systems aimed at sustainable futures and urban socioeconomic regeneration. He also is very into culture and technology as it relates to cities big and small. He works at the intersection of not only uh, technology, but also urban resilience and works with global organizations on smart city issues. So I'm very happy to have Zahir Aleem on the program. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really pleased to be speaking to you today. Well, we met on uh, Zoe Ether's 100,000 download party for her Smart Cities podcast. Uh, she's in Australia. She's, I consider her like the queen of smart cities. So, um, <laughs> yeah, she's really good. Really good <laughs> it's incredible eh, how, like, the podcast, the podcast thing actually exploded all of a sudden. Oh, absolutely. Well, because people are stuck at home now and we're like, desperate for content or different types so she was really very much a trailblazer in getting her podcast started especially i feel like a lot of people when they think about podcasts some people don't really think about the longer form podcast so being able to have a long form podcast that gets that much attention is especially on smart cities is really yes. amazing yeah yeah i'd love for you for any gaps that i missed in uh, in my introduction of you, I would love for you to tell the audience a little bit more about what you do. You're you're so multifaceted, and I would love to just get a more fulsome picture of sort of what you do and what you're interested in. Yeah, actually, for me, uh, I have kind of a very diverse background. I started, for example, my studies. I did a BSc in architecture, and then moved. Didn't want to become an architect. I I studied some project management. I did an MBA. Uh, my, I have another master's in political economy, but then my PhD is on humanity, something completely else, uh, where I studied smart cities. And I, but my passion is really uh, understanding cities. And for me, cities is really fascinating because it is an underlying fabric where everything happens. Because you have to understand water, you have to understand energy, transport, culture, because how the social fabric works in itself and how all those intertwine and renders the fabric really coherent. And when you look at smart cities, it's incredible because then you see technology as a transversal, invisible uh, uh, thread that interwines everything. It's incredible because then you can really unleash the potential of all those connections that you happen between themes. So for me, this is really what I'm passionate about. And as a work, I work as an urban strategist and I travel over Africa and missions um, on smart cities or urban regeneration missions for various governments uh, in Africa, dwelling mainly into smart cities or, um, and uh, other urban large scale projects. That's what I do. 
Excellent. That's a great, that's a lot. You cover a lot. I think, you know, when I think about smart cities, smart cities aren't just about technology, right? And I hear people say that a lot. So I would love for you to, to talk about that because like you said, there's so much involved and, you know, I love the way that you explain that where technology is sort of a thread that goes throughout. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, actually, when I started doing my PhD in uh, what I started in 2016, I finished in 2018. When I started, the concept just started picking up in Mauritius. And uh, for us, we have a very, we had a very different uh, perspective on it because it's very real estate driven. And uh, smart cities for us meant emerging cities. Whereas in other places of the world, it's existing cities. It's about urban regeneration through existing cities. And actually looking at back at this, it's like many countries have the same sort of ambiguous definition. And go- when I was going through my uh, PhD, I sort of understood that there's no universe- universally agreed definition of what actually is a smart city. It's like a whole blur. And at that point in time, smart cities are mainly driven by ICT corporations, by Cisco, IBM, and, and others, because they were pushing products. The smart city market is a booming industry of representing billions of dollars over the next decade. So it kind of makes sense that they were pushing product. And uh, the branding is quite intelligent because everybody wants a smart city. Because what's the opposite of a smart city? A dumb city? Nobody wants a dumb city. Everybody wants to be smart. So the branding works perfectly. And then uh, with uh, company, private companies coming to push products and so on. So for me, the, the, real, the smart city was driven primarily by ICT corporations at the beginning. But then cities kind of understand the challenges that the, this brings by being driven mainly by private corporations. And now it's kind of an interesting phase because we see transition from profit-making enterprise to more people-centered enterprises and the small city is kind of in the middle of all us. And I think it's a beautiful transition. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Um, I actually have a little story to tell uh, that happened to me uh, many years ago. So uh, many years ago, I lived in the Washington DC area. I lived in Maryland, uh, I don't know, 10 miles north of DC, I would say. And uh, this particular morning, I was getting ready for work. And on the TV, there was like a water main break, like several towns over. And you're watching. So basically, the road broke up and people were on cars or someone had to be like rescued by a helicopter. It was very dramatic on TV, you know, to see this thing happen. And you, I'm thinking, oh, oh, my goodness, that's terrible. But I'm getting ready for work. And then uh, I was going to turn on the water in my place and the work, nothing came out. And I thought, oh my God. So this water main break that happened several time, towns over is impacting me personally. Uh, and then I went to work that day and like the traffic was terrible like all day because of that thing that happened a couple towns over. So I feel like a, a lot of times we sort of live our lives and go and do whatever we want, but we don't really understand how we're connected uh, in that way. And how the how something that can happen, you know, to someone else can impact you. So I, to me, that was like a a good story about like you know not thinking about oh not not only thinking about yourself, but thinking about how so much of the things that go on in cities impacts all of us. Yes. Yeah. 
And it's like the same thing with traffic jumps, you know. Usually when you understand, you try to study what really renders traffic jumps, it's like one small urban dimension of functioning the city, like 15 kilometers away is actually creating a traffic jump of like 20 kilometers away. And it's like there's no centrally central solution for everything. It's like a series of solutions. Yeah, exactly. And I love the fact that you talked about the smart city concept transitioning over to the individual. So especially as you're talking about, you know, individuals, you have to think about individuals' rights, uh, individual privacy. Uh, What are your thoughts about that? I think one important dimension that can really be actualized through the smart city is, yes, privacy. We'll, we'll come to this in a few. But I think one is citizen participation. We can really break from the top, top-down top approach to really use technology to actualize uh, bottom-up approaches. One issue which we've been having through uh, property development and uh, city management was it takes a long time and it is very, very expensive to really gather the thoughts uh, and the process, you know, bottom of approaches. But with technology, we can really accelerate all those and really get a wealth of information, not only directly from the citizens themselves. This is one dimension of the data, but we can understand patterns and challenges from different themes, from also water, energy, et cetera, mobility. Because, you know, when speaking to politicians, for example, when we tell them that we think for us, climate change is a primary issue. Yes, it is a primary issue. But then when you look at different communities, they have different ranking of, of issues. For them, for example, climate change in this community is number one, for the other is number two because housing is priority and the other one, education is a priority. So by, let's say, overlaying the different layers, what people really want, what are the other varying thematics for different surveys and through other qualitative and quantitative approaches, we can really get a very in-depth understanding of the needs of different communities, not only for the city itself, but different communities. Because in the city, we have different identities. So we can really now pinpoint in accuracy or near accuracy the different needs of different neighborhoods. So when we develop a city, we can keep the identity and the culture of those different neighborhoods. And I think in this level, small city can be really, really powerful tool to engage in this um, community participation to build more resiliency and uh, culture. And to come to your next point, I think privacy is a fascinating, is a really, truly fascinating point. Because uh, coming side to side with smart city is a concept of safe city. And then it starts raising a lot of questions and just as much as a lot of concerns as well. Because one, uh, we have uh, concerns about privacy, about rights, about what happens to the data. But also interestingly, we government can promote it as a way to increase security. For example, in Mauritius, we had, um, they unveiled the smart city concept a few years ago by Huawei. And uh, I also wrote that we need to be careful and we have to devise the appropriate protocols and standards uh, while doing this. But interestingly, a large um, private company did a survey and most people were for the smart city concept because they saw that as a... uh, project that could potentially bring increased security for the neighborhood. And rightly so, we are seeing reports in newspapers that thieves are being caught up on this and this, and they can really track hit and run and so on. So at some point, it, it's, it's actually working. But then on the background for what we are read, for us, I mean, we want to know what happens to the data, who gets access to the data. And I think here, there's a lot of work to be done. 
when I think about privacy and I think about smart cities, obviously I think of myself, right? You think about what you do on a day-to-day basis, how you sort of live your life. Uh, what things are you thinking about now that relate to technology? Just your, just living your life and traveling and doing different things that have stood out to you about, you know, privacy or technology, how it's kind of changing your life in some way, maybe infringing or even, you know, how it's helping you in a certain way. You know, there's there actually research uh, that supports that if there are cameras in public spaces, people tend to move from those public spaces. Uh, for me personally, um, maybe because I live in a very small city, I mean, com- compared to your scale, m- m- the whole country will be a city for you. Our country's uh, population is 1.2 million. The capital city is 150,000 people. So it's, I think it's very small, but we don't feel that infringement as much, but I think this would, maybe this perception will differ in, in, in larger scale cities. For me, I think the challenge would come, I mean, I would be maybe more comfortable if I knew the state owned the data and manages the data that they're collecting maybe from source from my patterns of movement within the city and, and, and so on. But if the data is collected by a third party, not with the city, then I may be worried because am I being pushed product or what is happening with the analysis of my patterns or my movements? And this is a real issue for countries in the developing world because usually cities don't in the developing world won't have the resources, the financial resources to invest into those safe city technologies. So what happens? They would do a call uh, for partnerships, for PPP, public-private partnerships, and you will see private organizations coming in into, into uh, cities, bidding, and installing those infrastructures. And together with the government, they will be managing oper- the operations, which will be over 20 or 30 years. And also they will own ownership of the data. Or if they don't own ownership, it's also a very gray area. Because what happens, for example, in Mauritius, if the government owns data, uh, they are the on, let's say they are the only one allowed to capitalize on this data. But if a third party company, let's say a smart city, a safe city provider, analyzes the data provided by the government and interprets it on a graph, it now comes in a sort of graphical form. Then the third party provider will own the rights to the graphics of the data because it then moves to the art and culture culture, uh, legislation because the graphical form. So there's like very gray areas of the law where it's very difficult, actually impossible to really ascertain what a third party provider can do with the data. That's so true. So I did a video uh, a while back on derivative works and that's exactly the point that I was trying to make, where companies can take data and make something new from it. And that thing that they made it belongs to them, like it's their creation, even though that the data they use belong to someone else. So that's a, a very interesting point. I live in Chicago in uh, the U.S. And Chicago is a very heavily surveilled city. I don't have any statistics on how surreal it is, but uh, they've embraced that for many years. They've done it. I think they've done a decent job because I don't feel people, as far as I can tell, don't feel like it's um, encroaching upon them in some way uh, because it's just pervasive. 
you know, when you see things on TV about someone's ring doorbell and, you know, law enforcement have has access to that. Like they've for many years had, you know, like cameras from businesses that are connected into these other systems. So they can actually get a pretty good view of things that are happening in cities, especially in the, the business districts. And then also um, uh, the new interesting thing, new or interesting thing is listening devices. So devices that can tell where you are located based on there's pinging your phone, basically. And it sort of can tell, you know, they use it for crowd control and there aren't any cameras on these things. It's just listening for, you know, your your phone, basically, uh, to know sort of where you are and, and who you are. And, you know, so that may be interesting in like investigations or crowd control that sort of comes up. But are you seeing those things in uh, cities in Africa? In uh, Mauritius, uh, three years or four years ago, I sent a proposal to one of the largest, actually the largest telecom in, uh, provider in Mauritius, because I wanted access to the data, because I, I told them, you can you may anonymize the data, but I just want to know, for example, where are the 18 to 20 years old at 3.30 to 4.30 in the capital city? And I was thinking could be like very valid information to uh, propose urban regeneration measures for the city, but good for them. <laughs> they actually refused. They said even in anonymized form, it may it may be possible to track to track people. But so I, for Mauritius, I know this is not happening uh, through third party providers, but I'm not sure for other cities in Africa. In terms of smart city providers, for example, um, I do understand the case of we need to protect data and. Um, because it has like very severe consequences. But on the other front, if let's say we can have arguments as well that says we need to share the data as well. Let, let, let me explain one scenario, for example. Let's say we have 10 different small cities operated by 10 different service providers. And again, uh, those may be small cities. Let's say the cities of 100,000 people. Uh, in our definition, it will be cities, let's say for yours, it will be villages or towns. But let's say 10 communities, small communities of 100,000 people each. They all operate into a larger city of 1 million people. If we really want efficiency and to really understand the patterns and trends that's happening, we need to really exchange data, for example, water networks on all those 11 different fabrics and neighborhoods and so on. And here, we not only need uniform protocols and standardization of data sharing, but also... Uh, real protocols on anonymization of data on, on what end, but also uh, anonymization in the sense that it would be beneficial for, let's say, the researcher or the company, the central company that is uh, really managing everything, because only then we can really understand the patterns that's coming on. So yes, I think sharing of privacy is, is one issue which we really need to look into. But secondly, we need to accentuate the sharing of data. And I think this is a very tricky middle ground of how to anonymize data as well, to what level to anonymize it, but while still keeping the benefits uh, associated to sharing of data. That's true. Very true. So, yeah, so this, I think this is an issue that countries are trying to deal with. They're probably at the beginning of trying to deal with this. And that is, you're collecting all this data. People need this data, like you said, like urban planners and things like that to, to actually do their work or project 
what would be the best for our communities, but then they're grappling with how to how to get that data uh, to the people who need it and do it in a way that impact that um, protects the privacy rights of individuals. So I, what I'm seeing is, you know, there are a lot of companies going um, putting together like databases of synthetic data. So it tries to uh, mask the identity of the individual in a way that you can just really get the insights and then um, you know, doing things like anonymization and pseudonymization um, are popular, even though they aren't, you know, those exercises can be very time consuming and also very expensive. So uh, I think that there has to be ways, I'm sure companies are coming up with ways to be able to get that data to people like you who really need it because it is really important. So not every project is something that's going to try to encroach on the personal data of individuals. But, you know, in terms of what people want or what people need or what are the pain points of communities, that data can be very valuable and helpful. Yeah. And I think here cities could probably benefit if they look at it differently. For example, the traditional way is like I'm a private a third-party provider, a private ICT corporation, I will say I will monetize on the data for, let's say, commercial reasons or to sell advertisement or to place product and so on. This is a traditional approach. But we could also look at it in a way that it will benefit the city while also benefiting us. It's like win-win. Benefit the city and benefit the private organization. While if, we, if we then do this, the community benefits. One example could be, for example, uh, now talking about it, I'm thinking about it. I, I, we need to write about this. Yes. Uh, we could look at it as a cost-saving sharing scenario. For example, I say, okay, for a city of Chicago, if we can analyze the data and increase the efficiency and performance of your water networks, for example, if we increase the, the efficiency of this, we'll save you $8 billion or $8 million, whatever, and just give me 5% of this. Right. So cost saving sharing. The city saves, I win, and it's like an indirect way of selling a product without actually benefiting to third parties and so on. Yeah, that's actually a great idea. Uh, that's so funny. So I, uh, a, a dear friend of mine is the chief information officer for the, the water networks in Chicago. So I'm gonna get him on the show to ask him about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. When I think about, I, I don't know, you've seen the movie Minority Report, I hope. Yeah. So that movie is very interesting. They said when Steven Spielberg was doing this movie, what he'd done, he had uh, contacted a lot of technologists and futurists to try to get an idea of sort of what was going to be happening like 50 years ahead because he wanted the movie to be as accurate as possible. And it is pretty accurate if you think about like a lot of because that I can't remember did that movie come out like 20 years ago? I don't know. Mm. Uh, no, and a lot of the things that are in that movie are actually coming out now. So things like, you know, retina scans or, um, you know, advertisements that are, follow you around and show you things, even though they're not yet doing it on billboards, the technology is there to do that. Um, if you think about, let's say we were like a minority report right now, you're like moving through the city, what things would you be excited about in terms of technology and what things would, would uh, scare you? <laughs> I think right now, um, artificial intelligence is like one of the things that is like truly fascinating to me, both exciting and I'm a bit scared of the prospects. I just wrote a book which will be published uh, next month 
uh, I entitled it The Rise of the Autonomous Smart City. Because for me, we have one smart city, which is a basic principle of collecting data and analyzing data so that uh, urban planners or urban managers can make informed decisions. But I was wondering, with the advent of, yes, we are having big data because data is being collected by sensors, uh, Internet of Things all around the city. But then with the advent of artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence algorithm can actually process those data. And it would actually be better for the city, we can argue, argue that those algorithms take the decision on certain dimensions for the city. Then the city is more or less autonomous on certain domains, which will be more efficient and performant because we, if we have to tie with you know, administrative hurdles that usually cities have, it will take longer to enact a decision, which could have potentially large cost. So both economically and socially, and also perhaps environmentally as well, it could be beneficial to automate the city, for example, through artificial intelligence. So we could see autonomous smart cities. But then in the book as well, then I argue, but to what level will we automate cities? Then we, we also go into ethical grounds. For example, let's say we have a nuclear war going on. Should Will cities, you know, we go in the very Orwellian dimensions, would cities be able to retaliate for a nuclear war and so on? But it, I say this as kind of humor in the book, but then it truly uh, will happen like this in the future because we will go towards efficiency and performance, but to what level? And also by doing this, we will be perhaps inherent the bias of artificial intelligence algorithm. Now this, we see those biases through HR processes, through human resource and, and so on, but then on a whole city scale, those biases can impact on whole communities, then becomes very, very serious. Just in one end, we may perhaps better manage the environment, the climate crisis. But on the other hand, we have the social and cultural dimension of cities. Because culture is something which is extremely important in cities, but which is often undervalued and put aside in, in philosophy. So there's a whole of balance. And I think artificial intelligence at this point in time is very rudimentary and they don't understand uh we don't we can't train it enough to understand the sensibilities of culture and identities it will come maybe in the future but i think at this point in time it's still very baroque this is fascinating so you touched on something i would love to talk about and that's bias um bias and algorithms and you know that plays very much into smart cities as well because what you really want is for everyone in the community to be able to benefit of smart cities. And if we have people who are developing systems that, that aren't thinking about the diverse needs of people in smart cities, there could be a lot of gaps where certain communities benefit more than others um, mm -hmm. because of smart cities. What are your thoughts about that? I think one of the main challenges to this would be directly because, you know, those ICT corporations and those products would emanate from a Western market. Right. And putting, integrating it directly into the Southern Hemisphere and the developing world does not work. No. Uh, <laughs> we will need to really retrain those algorithms. And then it becomes challenging because we have a matter of scale. Your cities in the Western world would be like 1 million, 2 million, 10 million people. Here, our city is just 150,000 people. So we have a different idea of what scale really is. So retraining algorithm for real efficiency in our, scale, in our context will take longer. 
And usually what government also wants is like you take a product, let yes, they be give me a product for my city, I'll give you $10 million uh, and so on. You come and you place a product and you go. The operation as well is like an extra top up. They can retain the operation and they do it internally or, or you do it as well. The matter of training algorithms of training, this doesn't usually come into the context. And if it comes to the context then the issue of, yes, uh, scale is, is a problem because you may train an algorithm and you have the matter of 10 million people in, let's say, a few days in, in your context, but for us, it will never happen. So you've brought something I wasn't even thinking about, which is kind of this Western con- context where we're, we have a different perspective and trying to, trying to transfer that over and try to force it on you know, other cities or towns doesn't really work because, like you said, certain towns... Uh, cities or towns value different things, right? So let's say a smart city concept in New York may not work in you know, a different town because they, they value different things. Yeah. And also the way it's programmed, it's designed as well. It's just for completely out-of-scale proportions for us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That would be one, the Western thing, the culture, and the second, the scale is just completely different. Yeah. I would think, though, I don't know, maybe I'm thinking about this the wrong way, but I would think the smaller communities, they're a good test for smart city technology and things like that because they are smaller. Yeah, exactly. And maybe those you build on those games. So, you know, you do one, a smaller project and you like to build on it until you get to uh, something that's very robust. So I love to talk about how can individuals help or harm kind of smart city progress? Because I feel like, I don't know, because of COVID now, uh, the pandemic and people are, you know, more at home or, you know, their patterns of life are changing. I feel like it makes the thing about smart cities more important. You know, I feel like smart city, you know, development and technology is probably going to escalate because of COVID because people are living differently now. Uh, What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, I wrote a paper in uh, February. I think the uh, false company also wrote about uh, also about the paper. It was a paper on uh, COVID-19 and, 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 and smart cities. My idea was, again, we need to push towards uh, data sharing protocols because some airports in cities were using thermal cameras, but then the, this data wasn't being shared in real time with other airports in different cities and all different communities and so on, or buildings that are also using thermal cameras. So there was, the technology was there, the network was there, just it wasn't talking to each other. And I think this is, this is one issue, and I think the COVID-19 pandemic now is like really putting the limelight on this. And interestingly, a few months later, uh, Apple and Samsung came forward with a, a platform for data sharing as well. Yeah, I think COVID-19, we really pushed towards the adoption of technologies uh, in itself. But going to your question of how people can benefit from the smart city or really help the smart city. And I think this is interesting if you, when, when you place COVID into that. COVID will see, let's say, boom in the integration of technology in cities. But then when we talk earlier, it's like most of those solutions come from Western countries. We buy those solutions with it. But with a boom in technology demand and also coupled with the fact that uh, our global supply chains have been fragmented, we see an increasing demand of technology products, but locally based and source technology products. 
Mm-hmm. I think this is quite beautiful because then we see emerging entrants into the market and local entrants. Then what happens is we see a local wave of innovation and regeneration of the urban fabric and regeneration of businesses through a node that we would never have thought before. It's like creating a new wave of the economy and locally stimulating it. Yeah, right. That's fascinating. To me, one of the most pressing issues that I feel that localities everywhere can benefit from related to smart cities is about travel. So travel has been disrupted so much uh, because of COVID, like you said, about, you know, thermal checks and, you know, who's sick and who isn't, um, trying, especially like moving people through airports or uh, hubs of travel. Uh, what are your thoughts about that related to smart cities and how you think that's going to change in the future? You know, there's, uh, interestingly, during the COVID, uh, there's one urban concept that started booming. And I'm working with a team at the Sorbonne University in France to, um, to develop the concept. It's called the 15-minute city. It's an offshoot of uh, the smart city concept. And what it really underlines is to promote uh, proximity-based services within cities with the help of technology. So it's basically neighborhoods where you can walk 15 minutes across. So you favor uh, soft mobility rather than the car. And interestingly, during the COVID, what we saw was cities were under lockdown. So we couldn't really use a car and we needed to walk to near, uh, nearby uh, grocery stores and so on. And it's like we reconnected to the city in itself. And now this uh, concept is really booming. And one of the, interestingly, one of the underlying foundations of the concept is again, the use of technology because then we kind of rediscovered the need to map services because we need to know what's really near us, what we can really access. Yeah. And the need for basic services within this close proximity. And I think this is one of the very interesting concepts that is emerging with the pandemic. And interestingly, the city of Paris or is already implementing it at least uh, policy level. And we see uh, a few global cities around the world that is now turning towards it. That's true. So, and this is an interesting tension between kind of smart cities and privacy where people may not want to be tracked by their proximity. So let's say someone's, let's say um, technology companies say, you know, if I search for pizza, they assume that I want to go have pizza and have it in close by. So that's, you know, that's definitely a good thing. But then some people say, well, I don't really want to be tracked that way. Or the pizza place I'm looking for is in a different country or something like that. So I want to be able to change the filters of my search uh, so that I can uh, can do that particular search in a different way. So, uh, but I do think, you know, proximity-based searching would be important in a situation where you're locked down and you didn't have a car or you um, you were in a situation like in Chicago. Today, we just went back into another lockdown stage where like you can't dine in restaurants right now or you can't have, um, they told you you shouldn't invite people to your home that don't live there. And so they're doing, you know, things like that. So being able to even know kind of what you can do or can't do in cities. I think it's important because of COVID. So like, let's say uh, the drugstore or the grocery store that you typically would go to, maybe it's cl- it closes early or something like that. Uh, those things I think are highly impacted by 
you know, by the, the virus, but those are opportunities also for companies to come in or just people thinking smart about how things are changing and what they need to do. I think one, one other issue, because listening to you, uh, which I find interesting, which I think cities could adopt is, let's say, because when, when I was listening to you, uh, there's commercial value in those data for the, for the third party provider, for the private organization. Let's say if the, with this data, it equals to X amount of dollars and I'm the city. I can probably propose that if you give away, if you're going to implement a smart city and you give away the ownership of the data to the public sector, then you get a rebate of X percent on your income tax or something like this. It's like an, it could be like a fiscal policy uh, to um, control data, data ownership. And it could be easy because the government, the country or the city then doesn't spend anything. Right. It's a fiscal tool. Smart. Well, you're really thinking out of the box here. This is great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so if we're almost uh, at the end of our time, but I would love to know if, like, if you had your dream about what privacy should be in terms of regulation or how, you know, communities and governments respect the privacy of individuals, what is not there now that you would love to be developed? I do believe that there should be, uh, I mean, strongly believe that there should be sharing of data between parties and providers and the state so that there could be efficiency and performance for the individual. It has to benefit the quality of life of the person. But then on the other end as well, kind of frightened by the idea that then the state would have the upper hand of the data. And then if this happens, then the democratic levels and the architecture of democracy is uh, very, very important. And for this, we need like a very strong social democratic uh, regime. So I think this will come, I think, alongside each other, the architectures of society, the architectures of the political system, and uh, going along with the economic structures and then the, the needs of the quality of life of the citizen. I think those three dimensions need to really go well, well um, in line. And also the issue of timing, I think, is very important. For example, right now we see this, um, the credit scores in China which in, its, in itself, uh, you know, where each uh, citizen data collected by each citizen is equal to the credit score. But the political regime, a totalitarian regime in China, will use this structure for the totally wrong reasons. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that I think those three dimensions need to work together, social democracy, economic structures, and uh, quality of life indicators of citizens. Fantastic. That was wonderful. That's a book in and of itself right there. <laughs> Thanks. Well, thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. I, this is fascinating. I love your work. And I'll definitely be able to follow the things that you're doing because I think this is so important for the future. You know, we benefit from things that you're thinking about that we're not even, you know, we don't have any imagination about what's going to be happening in the future. So thank you so much for all your work. Thanks a lot, David, for inviting me. It was fascinating to speak to you. And yeah, uh, I look forward to speak to you again in the future. Fantastic. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers.